0: You're listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast, illuminating the unheard stories of today's top leaders in impact with your
1: host, Gino Borges. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today on the Poetry of Impact. Continuing with our Nexus series, today's episode features fellow Nexus member, Oliver Libby. Oliver is the co-founder and managing partner of HL Ventures, investing at the intersection of growth, impact, and diversity. Oliver is also the co-founder of The Resolution Project, a nonprofit that funds, mentors and supports young people who have innovative ideas to improve their home communities. In this episode in particular, you'll hear how Oliver sees all these secular topics like democracy, climate and inequality as terrains to play out his larger interest in preventing conflict. And boy oh boy, what a storied history his family has in science and medicine you'll be moved just simply by his family's history. What I'm really impressed by, though, is how he frames his life in terms of service. It's obvious Oliver's heart is in the game and his authenticity shines through his words. So with that, drop in and enjoy the conversation with Oliver Libby.
0: Welcome, Oliver. Thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to a great conversation.
1: (laughs) Me too. Um, you come highly recommended through uh, the Nexus community, and I think part of it is not only the work that you're doing in the world today, Oliver, is is um, in terms of the work that you're doing, but also your storied history in terms of the inspiration of your ancestors, whether it's your grandparents or your, and and your um, and your parents. Now, can you take us a little bit into that uh, story about what was happening? Um, in your family continues to happen uh while while you're growing up and then how that became sort of an inspiration for the kind of work that you're doing in the world today
0: yeah absolutely i mean i think you know the root of many motivations comes from your family context and and for me that's 100 true Uh, i grew up in a family that was mostly doctors and scientists and where kind of service to society was a huge deal there's kind of two threads that i'll together for you there. The, the first is, you know, in terms of science and and uh, advancing the frontiers of medicine, you know, my family's done a lot. I, by the way, have contributed nothing to that, but I, I was at their knees, uh, you know, growing up, uh, meeting some really fascinating people. I think I would say, you know, a very blessed uh, family in terms of just a, a fascinating dinner table and a lot of motivation. My uh, grandfather was a Nobel laureate and, and built hospitals and uh, trained physicians um, and helped uh, kind of advance. Advance our knowledge of genetics and immunology. Uh, my great uncle uh, won a Nobel Prize separately for discovering messenger RNA uh, in the, the mid-60s. My dad is a cardiologist. My mom is an OBGYN. And what's great ab- about that is, is not just, you know, the science and kind of the dry, you know, research and all that, but also the fact that actually all of them saw patients. And I think that, you know, reflecting back on them, it, it kind of humanized their approach to science. Um, you know, my, my mom sees, you know, 89. 90 patients a day. And so while she's making discovery, she's also interacting with people. And um, my sister and I were never forced to go into science and medicine and thank goodness, cause I was terrible at it. Um, but um, but we were pushed towards improving the world for people. And um, and then the only other thing I'll share with you is I wear it. I'm sad that, uh, that our listeners can't see this, but I wear my great grandfather's French army dog tags on my wrist as a reminder That he served in two world wars and that generation, you know, kind of even COVID notwithstanding, no matter what my generation has faced so far, it's not two world wars and it's a good reminder of service and sacrifice. So that's kind of that was in the drinking water growing up, you know.
1: (laughs) And then but now how do you go from a family uh, that's in science and medicine to um, essentially being embroiled in the world of finance, uh, to working on a day-to-day basis. I mean, there's some people that, um, you know, culture at large um, either poo-poos the world of finance and says that it, that we're way over-financialized in terms of cultural bandwidth taken up way too much and a lot of other valuable aspects of life are missed out on as a result of this. Um, but then on the other hand, there are some good things going on in finance as well. And it's, it's necessary to capitalize a certain aspects of life. So can you walk us through when that transition occurred where you realized, like, wow, this is going to be my service moment?
0: Yeah. Oh, there's so many answers to this question that come into mind. And one of them that I'll share with you from the outset is actually like I'm someone who's always also been deeply fascinated by politics and public service. So I don't think that you will see me be a venture capitalist for the rest of my career. Um, I also you know, think it's really important. One of the reasons I founded my firm is because actually finance is but one toolkit to support innovation and entrepreneurship. And actually so much of what we do around HL Ventures and at Resolution Project to be sure, is around all the other forms of capital that it takes to be innovative and solve problems. So what I'm really in the space of, and, and this is not just kind of a way that I've I mean maybe it is, but it's I hope that it's not just the way I've talked myself into this, but it's that we're in the space of problem solving. And one of our tools is to apply capital. Sometimes that's cash um, to helping push those solutions. But I will I will leave you with on this with one quick story, which is, you know, doctors can be snarky with one another. And one of my father's friends asked him one day at dinner, which I was at, um, you know, how do you feel about the black sheep of the family? And my father looked and pointed at me and he goes, him? And his friend's like, yeah, him. And my dad said, well, our hope is he's the green sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I choose to think of that as environmentally friendly sheep, but yeah. you know, I'll leave it to your interpretation.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that story. That's good. So there's a, um, so, I mean, there's a lot here. So you, so you're talking essentially about different forms of capital. So the capital stack is just not merely a financial or cash one, but it sounds like uh, now you're sort of in this sort of this midlife moment where you've been through some rodeos Uh, You've been looking at different ecosystems, whether it's political ecosystems, financial ecosystems, and then the science behind climate, or it could be even like sociological studies around equality. You're connecting a lot of dots. And so how have or how has and continues uh, to have, uh, I guess... You connecting these dots informed what's needed in the form of capital, whether it's social, intellectual. And I mean, how do you sort of navigate that space and take us through a real life example where you say this is exhibit A on why it matters to look at something holistically?
0: Totally. So I was raised by scientists, as we just talked about. And one of the fundamental things that was drilled into me when I was growing up is uh, healthy skepticism, not pessimism but skepticism. And there's a big difference. And um, so I'm an optimist at heart, but one who asks a lot of questions. And I really, really don't like received wisdom or mythology. The reason I take you through this is because if you look at the venture capital space specifically, it is so deeply suffused in mythology, which if you but ask a few questions kind of explodes, that I almost had to get into this. Right. And so um, I, I was you know, a consultant I had done some work in government and I was working with some friends who had startups and I was persistently scratching my head as to like, wh- like, is this really how we fund innovation in this country? Is this how we do it? Like, and does it all have to be in one city and what is the deal with the incentive structures and why do they try and make every company look like the last successful company and every founder look like the last successful founder they found? all the mythologies you know I mean even unto like, oh well, if you're going to be a venture capitalist, like try your best to get into deals that are led by these 10 firms. And I'm thinking to myself, but isn't aren't the deals that they'll let me into the ones that they're not as confident in because don't they have to spend all this money and they're going to take their best deals all to themselves? So that sort of thinking is what led me to start my firm. and the fundamental like red thread that you pull through the thesis for HL is active engagement with portfolio companies leads to better results. Yes, it helps if you invest money, but if you are not there with them every day in a friendly and supportive way and unlocking all the resources that we can provide for those companies, then you are at the mercy of just watching how the chips you know, fall uh, 10 years from now. And That's just a silly way to invest and to solve problems. I take you back to the fact that, for us, this is all about company building in order to solve problems and how can we best create a system whereby those companies are more likely to succeed.
1: And I mean, what have you learned as a result of active engagement? How do you know what active looks like? And how do you know when it's actually meaningful? So there's a lot of like frenetic nature to um, venture. There's a lot of um, frenetic nature to um, business relationships. But how do you sort of suss out what the essence is? And like, okay, this is what really matters here, guys. And so let's, let's dial this in or vice versa. How do you maintain a beginner's mind and making sure because, you know, there's a tendency when one's a lead on the platform to actually be the person that's that's uh, channeling what needs to be done? Like, I mean, how do you navigate between leaning forward and then also sort of stepping back?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's all about the culture and the vibe that we apply with our portfolio companies. And by the way, this applies to my nonprofit as well, right? At Resolution Project, we do the same thing. So Mm -hmm. the idea is, can you essentially be kind of supine, right? So so we don't blow into a conversation with a founder and say like, all right, here's a bunch of things we noticed and this is what you got to do. And you got to take this instruction from us and we're on the board. And like, if you want us to fund your next round, you better do these things. Mm -hmm. We're getting on our regular calls with these founders and saying like, what's going on? How can we help? Oh, all right, here are five or six things. All right, well, like, let's talk to these people and let's do this thing. But fundamentally, I would say, like, I would take you a layer above this, which is in both of my organizations, we have over time polled founders a lot about the experience of entrepreneurship. And I would say, by the way, that this next answer that I'm going to give you is heightened for impact-focused entrepreneurs and doubly heightened for underrepresented founders. And as you mentioned before in my introduction, those are the areas we play in most of all. The single most common thread for entrepreneurs is loneliness. Oh, yeah. Wow. Because think about it. You, you you have venn diagrams with all of your populations but your family often doesn't understand what you're doing your spouse is often in competition with your startup for your attention right not to say they're not supportive but there's, yeah. there's some daylight there and maybe they don't want to be bothered with what's going on at the office your team works for you your investors kind of have preferred shares and they're not quite the same as you are and maybe they sit on your board and they're judging you for the next round to whom do you turn? Even your co-founders. Sometimes, you know, there's, you know, there's always the the even the task or relationship friction or being entrepreneurs together. It is lonely as all get out. And so, when we started building the daily active engagement system um, and the resolution fellowship the idea was to try and make this less lonely and one of the key things you do is if you know if you ever want to understand how something what something is supposed to do you look at how it's structured and so for example in our venture studio we take common stock not preferred shares and the reason for that is not boring finance it's the founders have common stock so i want to have what befalls them befall me and so they are more likely not guaranteed but more likely to come talk to me in their darkest day because that's when i can shine and so, yeah, I'm, I'm super happy when our entrepreneurs are telling us that everything is great coming up roses and it's, you know, fantastic times, but the times which have made the biggest difference in my life are when a founder has been in terrible distress, where a company has been on fire and we've been able to come in and turn things around. And the best part of our track record is that we've never lost a company in 12 years. And it's not because we're great at picking companies and it's not because they're all going to be unicorns. It's because we're with them every step of the way.
1: Where does that come from in terms of, I mean, it almost sounds like you're the guy during grade school when like somebody got hurt on the playground, um, that you realize that, um, that, you know, we're sort of all in this together. Cause sort of kind of thing. I mean, there's, there's see, there's people that walk away from that scenario for a variety of reasons, but it seems like you walk toward conflict or you walk toward pain, um, a little bit. And, and I may be, misdiagnosing this, but I mean, where does that, um, uh, innate quality come from in you, um, to actually go toward the fire, uh, in, you know, in essence, because I can't say that in my own life, when I see fire that I'm always really interested in walking toward it. There's some assessment where I like, oh man, maybe that thing just needs to burn down. Uh, so like, I mean, And also, and also have you probably saved things that didn't need to be saved, right? Um, I mean, is there like a part of Oliver says, geez, maybe I get a little too involved with these things and that one probably just needed to expire. Perhaps that's not the case, but I just want to check in on that.
0: Well, I have to say, I love your questions because they always like, there's like five different things that immediately, (laughs) you know, popped into my head. I mean, the, uh, let me share three thoughts here. The first is to your last point. Like, do I feel like Captain Ahab sometimes you like going down <laughs> with the whale? Like, sure. Right. And and I think, you know, the second thing that I'll share goes to that, which is you're never always going to march to the sound of the guns. Right. Like humans don't do that. So if you want to kind of tend to do that, you have to set up the systems and incentives to push you to do that. In our firm, we we make a lot of very significant commitments and promises to our founders early on and i'm not interested in being a liar and so when there's the proverbial fire or gunfire down the road you know sometimes you say to yourself like oh god like all right well we got back we told them we'd be there so we better be there right you know and, uh-huh. and we just which it's just as simple as doing what you said you were going to do um but the last thing that i'll say is that there's there's a complicated psychology to this right and if i'm trying to be like as self-aware as possible for this conversation like in anyone who is a company combat medic or anything like that. There is a combination of a certain confidence that you have to have that like you can help, but then a certain obligation that ties you to helping if you think you can. And I think those things are both at play, right? Like on the playground, if someone fell and scraped their knee, I was absolutely going to run over and say like, okay, you go get the teacher and you go get the gauze and I let's make sure to find some rubbing alcohol somewhere for this. And, you know, my parents always told me that these things can get infected. Right. You know? Yeah. And so, yeah. Is that kind of a bossy know-it-all sometimes like, yes. And I have to watch that. But on the other hand, like, sometimes if you don't choose to show up, then no one will. And so, you know, you have to believe you can help. And then if you believe you can help, you have to go help. Mm -hmm.
1: And, So while staying on this sort of this origin and this longing uh, or this preference toward, um, you know, you have this democracy angle interest, you have this climate interest, and you have this inclusive um, sort of interest as well. Can you help us sort of connect the dot one, where did those three secular categories um, uh, come to to you from and eventually merge? And then what does it look like when they all sort of converge together in in the form of supporting, uh, you know, an entrepreneur in that
0: space? Um, this one's going to come out of left field. Um, so there's a very formative moment in my life when I was a little over two years old and I actually have, you know, it's always hard to remember whether you actually remember stuff or whether people told you about it. But I think I remember some of this, which mm-hmm. is my grandmother used to tell me stories when I was going to bed and she would tell me it. Very advised stories would be, a, you know, the story of Louis Pasteur or the story of, you know, Johann Sebastian <laughs> Bach or whatever. It was always something cultural and, you know, I'm trying to go to sleep. Right. <laughs> and yeah. uh, um, she told me at one point, she said, um, oh, da this happened before the war. And I said, well, what's war? And she like got up wordlessly and came back with the her father, my great grandfather's army dog tags, which I told you about, which I still yeah. wear to this day. And she had them sized for the wrist of a two year old and ceremonially over the years we added links until when she passed away and i was an adult but my fascination with conflict and military history started there and what's interesting is conflict sadly is one of the great unifying features of the human experience and so if you look at the stuff i'm interested in now it all stems from the fact that i wanted to try and help prevent conflict and thinking about the three things you mentioned you know democracy and good government is you know when it's done well is one of the great antidotes to conflict between people climate change is going to cause immense conflict between people uh inequity and uh and barriers to major populations who don't have access to the same resources as others is another huge source of conflict so the the through line here is conflict prevention and then you just look for the big problems of the day and where conflict, uh, you know, abounds. And um, you go to the sound of the guns, to your point from before.
1: And w- and where do you think Oliver is at on sort of that maturation scale of um, connecting, uh, you know, this convergence between like uh, democracy, climate and inequality sort of being the domain for this prevention of conflict to play out? I mean, where do you feel you're at relative to sort of culture at large uh, on this and like what's left to be done uh, for you? And what like those moments where you're like, geez, I just wish if we only could get to this point, we would see this huge sort of like, you know, exponential sort of climb uh, like parabolic shift in like in consciousness.
0: So. um history is this continuous story of these things playing out. And, um, you know, there's uh, there's a school of thought that is espoused by some really impressive thinkers that, you know, if you look at the human situation over the last, you know, 3,000 plus years of recorded history, that we're definitely better off now than we were then on a whole bunch of metrics. Um, you know, uh, this is like Steven Pinker's thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, like the experience of being alive now for a lot of people is, is not good um, and um, potentially measurably worse than it was a few generations ago, right? So, um, and there's a lot of trends at place. So, I mean, where am I in all this? Like, I'm like a cork on a tossed siege, you know, like, I, you know, I'm one tiny little cog that's trying to do um, what I can to solve things. I mean, no, n- nobody should be delusional enough to think that like you can make systemic change happen alone. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of the things we're trying to create with our venture firm with resolution with the work i do in politics is about getting to scale in certain important ways and i just don't know any other way to be than to just keep hacking away at these things right mm-hmm. and um and i will say like look i mean one of our original original ideas you know 15 years ago when we were starting to talk about this firm was solar power and i will say we are far from done right but solar power today is ubiquitous in a way that I could have only dreamed 15 years ago, you know, Um, and, and by the way, ubiquitous, not just in like blue, you know, ecologically sensitive states, but like deep red states where it just makes economic sense for people to throw these things on the roof or be part of community solar, right? And so you can see progress so i mean for me the work will never be it's never going to be done i'm never i'm not going to you know see the end of it um and i don't know if there is an end of it right um because life and, and humanity are infinitely complex but we are able to make progress and that progress gives me hope and i'm one of these bloody-minded optimists that um just thinks that we can make a difference
1: you have uh so so you mentioned you're an optimist, but on the other side of that is um, uh, that same coin is um, the possibility for dystopia to actually creep in, right? I mean, there is uh, an element of fear that just um, creeps in as a result of being a, a life force on Earth, a sentient being that that doesn't know how to trust everything, but is also brought face to face with terror on some things because there's context that we really. Either haven't evolved to handle or been socialized to actually handle. I'm curious about what the world looks like if we don't go down and have more of you and the groups and everybody is doing this work. But let's say we just um, that we're behind. And one is is that part of them is that does that happen to you periodically? Like you're like, oh shit! It's like, what does a tribalized world look like? Uh, that becomes increasingly tribalized potentially. So when you talk about democracy and you talk about inequality, you're talking about tribalism potentially. And Mm -hmm. then connecting with climate would facilitate the tribalism even more. What does that like? I, you know, I, I want to give the whole picture it's due in terms of like the whole spectrum from optimism to sort of dystopia so that people can really understand because there is somewhat like, I belief that it's so overwhelming that I'm just going to trust that what needs to happen happens.
0: No. And yeah. that, so I'm so glad you asked this because actually um, if you were a student of history, then not only, I mean, look, so let me take this back to a philosophical point. Optimism is as opposed to, um, to skepticism and pessimism and, and, you know, those sorts of, of, of places where your, your mind can go. But what's really interesting about optimism is actually my grandfather used to say it best he used to say and I, the difference between an optimist and someone who's just naive is an optimist is someone who believes that things can and will work out but that understands what might happen if they don't mm-hmm. and we in human history have some good examples of this and you don't have to actually wonder what might happen like if you had asked a roman at like the height of the roman republic if they thought that like By 400 AD, like Rome would be burned and the vandals would be everywhere. And like the only Uh, sources of like knowledge would be monasteries. Like they would have been like, that's crazy. What are you talking about? History doesn't go backwards. It sure does. It can. And that was a thousand really bad years for people, right? Like that was, it was not a fun time. Like even if you were wealthy, it wasn't a fun time but it definitely wasn't a fun time for most humans. Um, And that's like later on like the plague and warfare and the crusades and everything It's just, that's a thousand years of like backpedaling if you will, and stagnation. And we can go back there. Like there is no guarantee that the progress marches forward, right? But we have all the tools to keep progress marching forward. Like if we keep our shit together, pardon me, like Mm -hmm. then, yeah, we can avoid that. And I believe we will. But it is not for um, lack of effort, right? Like we, we have to be conscious of the fact that the precipice is on both sides of the bridge. And we have to keep walking this very narrow path or humanity can screw it up for itself. And that just means terrible suffering for a lot of people. So, you know, the tools are at hand, you know, like we can do it. And we have more than enough resources to do it, more than enough capital, more than enough amazing knowledge. I mean, look at how fast we came up with the COVID vaccine and look at how few people care about that, right, compared to how many should. Um, This is the sort of – like, put it – one last analogy for you. Like, yeah, I love to play tennis, and sometimes when I lose, the other guy beat me. And sometimes when I lose, I beat myself. And we need to avoid the unforced errors because history is hard enough as it is, and we are committing unforced errors right now that we don't need to. So, yeah, I'm an optimist, but an, a true optimist understands that the other path is possible.
1: What are you seeing as the unforced errors at the moment for us as a culture and a society at large? I mean, just like uh, like I mean, you know, like the top couple like unforced errors is like, gosh, Almighty, how can we be doing this?
0: I mean how can we still be debating whether climate change is happening and how is there no price on carbon? How are we debating whether vaccines are safe right now during COVID and whether we should just wear a cloth mask for god's sakes, you know, and I don't I'm, I don't mean to be insensitive to people who but I'm sorry like my family are immunologists and geneticists like my great uncle discovered messenger RNA which is now the underpinning of the two most successful vaccines like this is not you know, I mean, this should not be up for debate, right? Like, sorry. Like, so so, it's very, I mean, these are unforced errors. We are, and by the way, like, had we run the United States, like, pandemic playbook that we were so proud of for decades and that we had run for H1N1 and the original SARS and stuff like that, we would be long out of this thing, right? Mm-hmm. We we are still in it because we have made some choices as a society and, and you know, different people made different choices, but that's a big unforced error. You know, another one is like, how is it that we haven't understood why the structural barriers that stand in front of underrepresented and underprivileged communities in our country are leaving locked up immense potential? You know, that's an unforced error. Like that, we have amply the education, um, medical, food, and other resources to make sure that, you know, the projects down the road, aren't like a different world to, you know, the places where I'm lucky enough to live, right? um so yeah these are all sorts of things that like again it's hard enough to do it right but these are just unforced errors in my opinion
1: Mm -hmm. when so when you share so um you have a couple children right i mean you have young children is that right no i actually don't i
0: just got married in october
1: okay i see i mean you just got married i mean how i i mean how like how do you um sort of envision so i mean some things happen so Before you're married, you can bid a hundred percent to whatever you want to. uh, And then like you get married and there becomes sort of a, a, a union interest, but you still have your individual lives. And then eventually if you and your partner end up deciding to have kids, um, then it really gets sort of like diluted your individual journey versus the union. And then also sort of, sort of the kids, um, I've become increasingly interested in uh, recognizing the finitude of my own existence. I'm 49, and um, I'm really interested in how people really not only view time, but allocate their time. So, um, I feel like you're very good at staying close to the essence on most things, and and, and you get to essence really quickly. Or is that just your spoken self, but behind the scenes, you're like, gosh, I just been a shitload of time just to get down to this, you know, the marrow of what really matters here. See, see, can you take us a little bit through sort of the thought process of like how Oliver actually comes to actually learn about, because I mean, obviously somebody hears this and says, wow, this guy's got like 18 different heads working at one time, uh, connecting all these dots. And, um, I was just really interested in just stepping back when you're off screen and not sharing your story and you're not making decisions, what's like, what's your day-to-day sort of look like, especially allocation of time
0: and like how you view it. Uh, well, first of all, um, uh, you know, your, your audience can't, can't hear me blush, but I'm blushing. Uh, <laughs> like, but, uh, but, okay. but all 18 of these heads are, um, you know, I mean, I think one of the most important things I've learned over time is no one has everything and there are always trade-offs. And I mean, if you asked my incredible wife, Sabrina, um, the cost of some of these things, like, yeah, I do email until two in the morning and I am very single-minded about solving some of these problems. And, you know, you can create mental palaces for why that makes sense, right? I mean, you mentioned kids. i will have them. I look forward to having them. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of this is for them, right? I want to make sure that they have a better existence than I had. And this is the first generation, as I'm sure you know, the first generation of Americans for whom that was not the case. Um, So, you know, I I can, I can elide all the stuff that we're talking about to that. But like, yeah, like, will there be sacrifices and things that I don't do that I would have wanted to do and that, you know, other folks get to do because of all this? Sure, like, you cannot you cannot have more than it is possible to have, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how many of your conversations with entrepreneurs that you're working on are more just existential conversations? I mean, you mentioned loneliness, which is something that I feel like I've dealt with since I was a teenager. Um, you know, I always felt that there's a little Holden Caulfield inside of me uh, mm-hmm. that's always sort of longing for like an authentic sort of connection with uh, people and my own soul and so forth. I'm curious about these engagements that you have versus like the level of conversations that deal with tact- tactics and strategy versus just existential, um, you know, connection.
0: Yeah. Uh, so a couple things, first of all, the models that we've built at, at HL and at Resolution Project, are designed to create a deep bond between us and founders, so I spend an unusual amount of time having just philosophical and friendly conversations with our founders mm-hmm. The other thing that I'll say to you though is um, nothing is ever really just tactical um, give you an example right the uh, the Roman military um, you know is renowned for having had certain formations that are really famous with interlocking shields. Um, but that's not just a tactic, right. The idea was that Romans viewed uh, battle as something that was collaborative across a unit. They were the most sophisticated thinkers about unit cohesion and the value of staying together in combat and not going into individualized you know duels and um, how like a systematic approach to combat would allow a very small number of people to beat a very large number of people, and that played out well for them. So the seemingly small idea of like, even in fact, you know, a crazy thing, Romans Roman soldiers fought with a very short sword. And the idea was, if you have a short sword, you're not going to ever want to go one-on-one against a German tribesman <laughs> who has a long sword because the short sword loses against the long sword. But if you can all stay in line, lock your shields and kind of stab through the shields with a short sword, now it's a much better outcome. So tactics are always like, and, and so I, I go through this like crazy arcane example for you because <laughs> most tactical problems entrepreneurs have go back to who they are. So, if they're having a problem with an employee, it probably goes back to something in their leadership philosophy or something about how the company is being run. And if you understand the strategy of the person and who they are, then the operations and the tactics flow from that, and you can help a lot faster and a lot better.
1: It seems like there's a connection. You mentioned the resolution project, and and is that an outgrowth of the venture project, or is that solving? Um, can you talk about sort of how? how the, what appears to be like these two siblings interact, um, you know, they both have their own personalities, but they're part of the same family. It sounds like.
0: Yeah yeah well look first of all I, I co-founded those organizations with separate people but they've been deeply intertwined the whole time and thematically their dna is very linked it's kind of funny in that we run resolution project which is a 501c3 kind of like a startup and you might say that some parts of our for-profit venture firm are more philanthropic right the impact the diversity all that stuff so th- there's you know there's a very yin and yang thing happening between these two organizations um i founded them almost simultaneously um so they're they're contemporaneous in their birth Um, almost within a few months Um, and ultimately the core assumptions were the same ones it was just very different scale right on one hand the resolution we thought gee like young people are constantly told that they're leaders of tomorrow could we help them start today and even if they're running a small project you know project at their uh their high school or their uh, university then you know maybe uh that would make them better leaders and more capable over time as they grow and you know that's not expensive to try right it's a few thousand dollars and some mentorship um, but it was still that idea of the kind of active engagement, right? The 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 supportive presence and the resourcing beyond cash that powers both organizations. So yeah, I mean, very much Yin and Yang, very tied thematically. And the whole idea is you have to be there holistically for entrepreneurs. It's not just about, you know, writing a check in a certain round.
1: Right. So when I described the resolution project and maybe I didn't do it justice, but uh, it suggested that you support uh, entrepreneurs who have innovative projects for their home communities. Um, you know, the term innovation tends to have sort of this God God status to it, and so it almost goes unquestioned. Uh, you know, people just use it and without really asking what it looks like, I'm curious on what it looks. what one, what does innovation look like? in that context for the resolution project, like this is innovation. And then two, when when it says for the home communities, is this place-based innovation then, or is this innovation that transcends
0: uh, time and space? Well, sometimes it does, but it all starts at home for resolution fellows. We're in like 20 plus states in the US and 85 countries, and all of the resolution fellows start their work in their home, home communities where they live Um but it's interesting, you know, it goes back to something I said very early in our conversation, Gino, which is that um, I'm, I'm kind of an enemy to mythology. Um, and there is this mythology, <laughs> I would say, like the, the kind of Silicon Valley mythology of the hoodie wearing billionaire with the unicorn company where technology is going to miraculously solve the world's problems um, or at least do the laundry better. Um, that is not that that has hijacked certain terms i often talk about the fact that entrepreneurship has been hijacked you know the corner bodega is also like the owner is also an entrepreneur right they get they may not be venture backed but they also started something and undertook something and that's entrepreneurship same thing with innovation i'll give you a story we had a um, a wonderful resolution fellow from from zimbabwe who um got a scholarship uh, miraculously to come study in the us at a very small college that no one's heard of and um saw his first bunk bed And his thought was, huh, like, there's a bunch of crops that could grow in the top bunk, and maybe I could put a third bunk on top of that. And he went home and he has now thousands of these raised bed farms, which in his village in Zimbabwe had never been a thing. Now, he's not the first person to ever think about raised beds and stacked beds, but, he, but the innovation there was him looking at this like bunk bed for his dorm room and being like, whoa, I could grow food on this and then, you know, treble the land available to his family in his village in Zimbabwe. So it, it doesn't need to be Facebook, right? And sometimes it kind of is better if it is right but but innovation and entrepreneurship are about innovating for your community and undertaking the brave act of starting something and that's what we're talking about Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. and is that notion of conflict still at the center of the resolution project in terms of preventing conflict i mean do you sort of see that as still the sort of the omni motivation uh you know the all-inclusive motivation still even at the resolution project
0: Yeah. So I would, I would differentiate a little. So it certainly motivates me. I couldn't speak for my co-founders. They may be coming from a different place, but it is hard to argue with the fact that if you have young people, you know, it's funny, we, we, we end a lot of our awards presentations for our various social venture competitions around the world, um, with kind of a clarion call. And we say that social entrepreneurship and social innovation know no boundaries, no borders, right? And with there's a whole series of they know no, no obstacles. And, and so, you know, resolution fellows are from, you know, all around the world. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite things is to see, you know, a resolution fellow from Dearborn, Michigan talking to a resolution fellow from, you know, Malaysia or from Mumbai and India or from, you know, uh, the slums of Durban in South Africa and, you know, avidly sharing these ideas. And, and that just has to lead to a more peaceful and productive world. Hmm.
1: Oliver, we're getting close to sort of the wrap up here. I'm curious, did anything, um, Emerge for you during our conversation that really hasn't been shared. It's like, oh, I wish I could sort of circle back to that a little bit, either clarification or something that just uh, didn't didn't get expressed, um, or just something that you would you would like to sort of tidy up in terms of how you know you would hope the audience would not only know you but uh, you know the work that I mean you're doing
0: in the world. Uh, well. First of all, I mean, I'm I'm very grateful to you. I, I think, you know, it's it's wonderful to have these conversations and, and to have a conversation that isn't, you know, super, I mean, I love, you know, a 45-minute conversation on specifically, you know, diversity and inclusion and in venture. That's amazing. I do it fairly frequently, but it's nice to have a more broad-ranging conversation. You know, for me, one thing in the way that you asked questions, something that came to the fore that I think might be interesting to highlight, just, you know, you asked me very early on <clears throat> how I would have ended up in finance. And um, for the listeners that can't see my face, you know, I kind of like turned my head and, and was confused by the question because I don't view myself as a finance person. And like I said at the beginning of the conversation, you go, sure, finance is one of our tools. But I think, you know, if you're really trying to solve problems for folks in the world and improve the world, then you can define yourself as a supporter of entrepreneurship and a problem solver and a connector of people And the specific tools of that trade, be they venture capital or, you know, moving money around or consulting or certain kinds of services become simply something that's strapped to your waist in order to effectuate that change. Right. Um, And so, yeah, that's something that, you know, your questioning has brought to the fore for me, which is I don't, I've never viewed myself as a, uh, you know, a finance guy. I am a, I'm a supporter of entrepreneurs and I use every tool that's, that I can.
1: Yeah. I'm, I, I'm wondering if I got sort of caught up in that heuristic cue of um, HL being um, called a venture fund, or maybe I named it a venture fund, just assumed that it was a venture fund, you know? Um, so, I mean, maybe I was actually caught up in that.
0: No, but a look, bit. I think I think that's why, look, I mean, we, we live in this all the time, which is like in order to um, <clears throat> make certain kinds of investors feel more safe and comfortable to invest in us, yes, we have to. <clears throat> we have to hew to some of these yeah. Kind of tropes and memes. Right. But if you ask us what we do, I will tell you, like, we run a company building <laughs> ecosystem, but yeah. like, yeah, you go talk to like a large, you know, endowment about it like, please invest in my company building ecosystem. Like, get out of here. Like, what is that? I've never done that before. So, you know, there's a little bit like, who do you, who are you and who do you want to be? And then like, what do you, what do you say in order to situate that in people's experience? Right. So, and neither one of is wrong. We're certainly a venture capital firm, but I, I think we aspire to more.
1: Yeah. Amen. And where could people learn more about you, Oliver, and the work that you guys are doing?
0: Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I uh, um, somewhat hilariously have a website that's just OliverLibby.com for like various writings and things. And I'm sure, you know, relatively few people visit that on a daily basis, but it's there. Um, On HL Ventures, we just have a very simple website, h-l.vc. And similarly, the Resolution Project is uh, uh, resolutionproject.org. Um, you know, I'm on social media and easily findable on those things. But um, you know, I I always direct people to come learn about the two organizations, HL and Resolution. We're doing some really amazing things. With blessed to be with some really amazing people, both the team and the entrepreneurs and the folks that back us. So um, you know, can't wait for folks to to learn more and please reach out. We'd love to chat.
1: Good deal. Thank you so much, Oliver, for I mean sharing your stories, stories and thoughts with us today.
0: I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who's listening and uh, looking forward to many more great conversations as we you know, tackle these big problems that I, I know we can solve.
1: Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening in to today's conversation on the Poetry of Impact. The podcast exists for and because of listeners like you. Be sure to subscribe to the Poetry of Impact podcast on your favorite podcast player, and if you have time, leave us a review. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Poetry of Impact podcast. For show notes and additional resources, visit poetryofimpact.com.